Romans 3. I'm excited to be back in Romans. I know God had us in some very specific seasons, and some of this has been on the shelf, and I got to really dive back into it this week and dust some of these thoughts off and some of these notes and really get to dive back into to Romans, I believe, for... Um, I'd like to stay pretty consistent through the summer here. We'll be tender to what the Lord wants, but um, I'm really enjoying myself understanding more and more of what the Apostle Paul was accomplishing in this letter. And it is a blessing. I wanted to get through the first eight verses, and tonight we'll get through the first two verses. Uh, But there's something here. I've read this verse before, and for the first time, Really, just a few days ago, God really got a hold of my heart with what was being said. And uh, I had just a real moment in my office, just where the Holy Ghost sat down on what I got to read. And when God opens your eyes to the truth of His Word and He lets you see what He really wants you to see, uh, there's nothing better than studying the Word of God and the Spirit bearing witness to what you're reading in your heart. And sometimes it's like I can just close my eyes And I can see the little candle that's burning and I can see the one that under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost of God is writing the letter. And it's it's a powerful moment when you're alone with the word of God and these these things happen. And uh, just very quickly, I won't take time to even back up to the last time we were together. Uh, This is the 21st sermon in Romans that we've been able to accomplish for the Lord and for our study. So if you've not had an opportunity to hear any of them or you've missed this study in Romans, it would be of much benefit to you to go back and as you can either on Sermon Audio or on YouTube or in the archive at the website, go back. They're labeled very easily. You can search there in the archive for Romans and you can start at number one and work your way all the way to number 21 tonight, which is Romans chapter three, verse one and verse number two. Before I read these verses, let me just give you a a quick drive-by of what we accomplished in Romans 1 and Romans 2. In Romans chapter 1, we focused a lot on what Paul had written there about the sin of the basic immoral person. We talked about basic immoral people, and this is the person that simply wants to ignore God. Uh, This is the person that wants to ignore the word of God, the law of God, the principle of God, and live however they please, And they do it in a way that there's not much thought given to God. It's not that there is an attempt to redefine who God is. It may even be someone who is comfortable knowing that there is a God, there is a right, there is a wrong, and they just choose to be indifferent to the Word of God and to who God is. This is just the basic immorality of human beings. All of us are born this way. No matter who you are, you were born a sinner in need of a Savior. And all of us were born with a sinful nature. And all of us, until God the Holy Ghost began to do His work, all of us were born indifferent to our sin. It was not until your parents began to tell you no or to tell you that you were doing something wrong that you became aware that there was a right, that there was a wrong, and that you were expected to live a particular way. That's why God is a God of order, God is a God of structure, and he expects that the home emulates the structure that he has established. All of us are born this way. We saw that in Romans 1. 
Then in part one of Romans chapter two, we looked at the sin of the morally superior person. The morally superior person. This is the person that can try to find the high ground, that tries to to find the high ground within the human condition. And usually that sounds like this. Well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a thief. I've never been to prison. I'm not as bad as he is. I'm not as bad as she is. So I have obtained the moral high ground in my humanity. And thus I'm the morally superior person. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us need the grace and the mercy of God. And apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ being imparted in your life, there is no righteousness in your life. Our righteousness is defined very carefully for us in the word of God as filthy rags. That's what God thinks of human moral high ground. This is a lot of what you hear and see. I'll be careful here, but this is a lot of what you hear and see in politics these days. The moral high ground. You hear the Democratic Party and their platform tout that they have the moral high ground. What a joke. You hear the Republican Party say that they have the moral high ground and their conservatism, and their values. What a joke. There is no morality within man's doings. There is no moral high ground for anyone to claim. The only righteousness to boast in is the uh, righteousness that, that you find in Christ Jesus that in grace and in mercy was imparted to you. And Romans 2 makes that very clear. That steps on everybody's toes. That just clears the whole field for us all. Sometimes even Christians find the wrong way to find the moral high ground. Well, I'm not that drunk. I'm not that drug user. And I'm, I'm a saved person. And I'm a Christian. And I would never, if it wasn't for the grace and the mercy of God that got a hold of you, there's no telling what you could have been. The correct reply to someone in that state is, my God in heaven, have mercy on that person. Lord, I pray that in your time that they would see Christ for who he is and be saved. There is never a place for a really prideful people to be right with God, even those that are in the faith. And Romans 2, the first part, really just makes it clear uh, that the morally superior person really isn't superior at all. It is Jesus and Jesus alone, his righteousness alone. Romans chapter two, the second part, then we talked about that more in detail, the sin of the religious person. And this is one who may even practice the law. This is one who may even keep the law and the content of the law, but only have the letter of the law and not have the heart of the law. This is where religion, if you remember Romans 2, uh, religion is torn to shreds in Romans 2. Religion will get you nowhere. You can light 6,000 candles a week. You can recite as many little handwritten prayers as you desire. You can wave all the colored flags you can. You can do all that you want to in your works and in your morality and in even in the name of religion. At the end of the day, if Jesus has not radically changed your life, it's all for nothing. 
There are people who will die and go to an eternity without God who said, I lived a really good life. I did a lot of really good things. I was a clean person. I was a nice person. And they'll die and go into eternity and they'll spend an eternity in hell separated from God based on their religious morality and their goodness. When right there in front of them, the word of God teaches clearly that grace, grace, Grace and faith that can only come from Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God. Both the grace that was imparted and the faith for you to believe the faith that was given to you. Both were a gift. You didn't find Jesus. Jesus found you. You didn't do enough good works to earn heaven. He came to where you were in your low state. And that's why the entrance to the kingdom of God, as according to Romans 2, that we found that it's at a very low place of humility. In Romans 3, we'll continue to look at the hyper-religious person and how specifically uh, that they are full of guilt and skepticism. A lot of people who live their life skeptically about everything, really they're masking their fear with skepticism. At the end of the day, those things that rob you of what the Bible teaches, the, the, the love that God has given, the sound mind that God has given, and the love that God has given, when those things begin to fade away in our lives and they begin to be uh, somehow subverted or pushed back and it's hard to find love for other people and it's hard to think clearly about what you're going through and to have the sound mind and the wisdom that God gives. A lot of times, if you'll push through the skepticism, if you'll push through whatever it is that's causing you the angst, you'll find fear. You'll find a lot of really religious people who are faithful to God's house, who do a lot of good deeds and good actions, but at the end of the day, there is something, and a lot of times it's pride that they're holding on to, and that's exactly what's happening here in Romans chapter 3. Let me read these verses to you, and then we will make it very clear what the Apostle Paul is teaching. He asked this question. He says, what advantage then hath the Jew? What a question to ask. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them, who is them? Who? The Jews. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. What then is the advantage of the Jew? And Paul quickly answers there are many things. There are, uh, most things are in the advantage column of the Jew, but chiefly the most prioritized uh, advantage that the Jew possesses is that the word of God or the oracles of God were committed unto them. And so what I want you to see is the a little bit of pressure now that's taking place. Remember who's writing this letter and remember who the audience is in Rome who's reading the letter. This is a brand new baby church. These are Jews that have just been in the faith for a short time. And much of what Paul is dealing with here is the shocking jolt, 
It's a, it's a real jolt from Judaism to Christianity. Think about that now. These are practicing Jews who have now been converted. They have put their faith, trust, and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And now this shock to the system is taking place because they're going from the practices of keeping the law in, in, in staunch Judaism now to hearing that Christ has come. The Messiah has been born. He's lived. He's performed miracles. He's died. He's resurrected. And now he has gone to heaven to prepare a place. But the good news is there's a comforter who is here and he's here to stay and he will change your life. This is what they're feeling. This is the abrasiveness of the moment. It's these baby steps in the faith. Even though they are learned Jews, even though they are devout Jews, these are baby Christians. These are infants. These are ones that are now on milk. They've known the law. They've spoken the Torah, the Pentateuch. The most of them can memorize huge chunks of the Pentateuch. But now Jesus is come. And Jesus has changed the entire economy on redemption. And now no longer will animal sacrifice suffice. And now we're at a place where there's some tension here. There's this jolt from Judaism to Christianity. And no doubt, many of these people were struggling with this jump to truth. Their faith was brand new and truly in its infancy. And imagine being a Jew then, having kept the law, having been righteous to the best of your ability, uh, faithful to what your father and your grandfather have taught you all those years. And then you're walking one day to market, and there's this burly dude standing on a box and he's preaching about Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And you don't recognize this rabbi. You don't recognize this teacher. He's new to town. You don't really know who he is. And you get closer and closer and something happens about 10 feet out. Uh, you step a little closer to this man who's preaching Christ and then something takes over your heart. And all of a sudden, your eyes are open to the truth that Jesus has come, the Messiah has lived, and he's bled, and he's died, and the Holy Ghost of God shows up and convicts you and opens your eyes, and in that moment, you go from a tallit-wearing, prayer-shawl-dawning Jew to having your eyes open to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. But everything you know, every tradition you've ever held near and dear, everything changes because Messiah has come. And it might even be that some of these Jews were frustrated with their brethren who lived near Jerusalem and Galilee who missed this thing. It could be that they're upset. Are, are you telling me Messiah came? Are you telling me he healed blind people? He, he took a crippled hand in synagogue and, and fixed it and made it whole. And we still, we tried to have him killed. Are you, are you telling me we missed Messiah? And someone has to look at him and say, yes. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they, they missed it. I too didn't believe. And, and, and yes, we cried for Barabbas and they released Barabbas. And, and they hung this Christ on the cross. But the crazy thing is, we saw him again just three days later. And there were the scars, and there were the holes, but something totally different had changed. And we missed him. 
Isaiah 53 is the greatest example of this. To this day, the Jews in Israel will not allow Isaiah 53 to be read in daily readings in synagogue. Why? Because in the depth of their heart, I believe this with all of my heart, they know, they know that they missed the mark. I think there's a huge swath of Jews who will study it close enough that will look at Psalms 23, 24, and 25 and they they get paranoid because they see Christ and who he was and what he was and they have to do something with all of these crazy Christians that come from the United States and, and there's truth and there's love and there's compassion. And there's Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected of men. His own people turned against him. They bruised him. They marred him. They they would not hear him. And now the gospel is spreading. And the apostle Paul is in love setting these people up for the abrasive switch. The abrasive jump from law to grace. Law has been completed. It's been perfected in the person of Christ. But now the truth has to be preached to them. And that's got to be tough. It's got to be hard. I I, I really, I have pity for these Jews. I have pity on them. There wasn't Facebook. There wasn't Instagram. There wasn't FaceTime. Some of these messages are years old. And they're just now hearing And now the the Holy Ghost of God has to help them in this transition to truth. You see, it wasn't a slow fade. And we're diving deep here, but stay with me. God will bless you. Uh, This was not a slow fade when Jesus died on the cross. There was not a slow transitional period from law to grace. When Jesus went to the cross and died, and when he went to the grave and resurrected in that moment, the moment his lungs reinflated, the moment that blood began to pump out of his left ventricle in that tomb, the moment that his eyes opened and his brain function came back into perfect rhythm with God Almighty. The moment Jesus steps out of the grave, redemptive history was changed forever. And it was not a two-year program. It was not a five-year program. It was instantaneous. Grace, grace, God's grace. And it showed up that day in the garden tomb. I believe with all my heart, Jesus wasn't even off of the stone bench before grace and the new covenant was accepted. Everything had been switched over. New rules are now in play because Jesus is alive. This is an instantaneous moment of joy and peace and victory. And it's something that even reverberates into this sanctuary today when someone gets born again. We made the switch. Jesus paid the price from the law to grace. And these Jews who are being truly converted are having to process this in that time, in that era. And I have pity on them. And Paul knew this. You see, you have to understand there is a real sense of pride in being a Jew. This is a a point of contention. Jewish bloodline and Jewish practices and Jewish law. And and he even puts in here about circumcision. 
Not only had they been given the oracles of God, the word of God, but then they had the practices that went to the T towards the word of God. They were in line perfectly with the law. They are some law-keeping people in this place. I mean, all of the thou shalts, all of the thou shalt nots, things that I could never do. God knew that I had to live under grace or I'd been in trouble. Somebody say amen. I'd been in trouble. 613 rules that I have to keep. My Lord, I can barely obey the speed limit. He said, so what advantage is then? Stay with me. Gosh, I, I, I really believe the Lord would help us here to, to be encouraged. He asked, what is the advantage then of the Jew? What's the advantage? You've kept the law. You missed Messiah. You cried for Barabbas. The Sanhedrin hated him. The Pharisees tried to have him killed multiple times. What advantage is there of the Jew? They missed Christ. And he answers, the oracles of God. The word of God. And the oracles, very defined. Let's define this. It's more than just the word of God. It is more specifically a divine utterance delivered to men. The oracles of God are, are more than just the word of God. It is a divine utterance with the audience, with the listener being that of a man. Remember the Jewish people, they are, they are the chosen people of God. The whole world needs to get over that. Get over it. He chose them. He didn't choose the United States of America. He didn't choose the Chinese of ancient thousand years ago. Do you realize that the Chinese, the dynasties and, and the, the incredible things that they had built and done. Why didn't God pick the Chinese? Because that's what in his will. He picked those little Hebrew children, those slaves. Zechariah 2.8, remember these verses. It says, for thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. This is God speaking to his children. This is God speaking to the Jew. When someone lays one finger on your head, it is as if they are harming the center of God's eye and poking the eye of God. That's how God feels when his children are harmed, when his children are molested, when his children are bombed, when his children have their land taken away. You better be careful coming up against Israel. Go look at all the dynasties, all the powers, all the forces that have come against those little, that little nation of Jews and answer to me, how many of them are still here? They're like, oh, for 15. It's not good odds. God takes it seriously that he chose these people. Now they've come to this place where they're realizing they've missed Messiah. Some things are out of whack. And even the ones that are just now being born into the faith are having to struggle with tradition. But I'm chosen of God. I remember what the prophet Zechariah said. I remember what Isaiah said. I remember what Moses said. How could it be that I missed Messiah? You think of the knowledge they had and then to equate, they're not stupid. They know what's happened. We missed him. And now they have to go through the process of re-identifying themselves. They are truly in an identity crisis. 
of all crisis, especially the Jews that weren't in Jerusalem and weren't in Galilee. Deuteronomy 32.10, it says, He found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. He's talking about his people, the apple of his eye. We don't have time to get into all of this, but remember Genesis chapter 12, one through three. This is Abraham, get thee out of thy country. I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless him that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. This covenant with Abraham is still in place to this day. The descendants of Abraham are still under this blessing, this covenant, this promise that God made with his people. That I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. Understand that the Jew has an advantage. He has the advantage of the oracles of God, the principles of God. Of God. But here's the good news, and this is where we'll finish tonight. You must understand what Paul is saying here to this very Jewish audience in Romans 3 is for their benefit, but it's not just for the Jews' benefit, it's for your benefit too. Nobody's excited about that. It's for your benefit too. Romans chapter 1. Do you remember this verse in Romans 1? Go to 1.16 of Romans. It'll be on your screen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. To the Jew first, there's the advantage again, and also to the Greek. Do you know who falls in under Greek in the New Testament? Winston Parrish. That's me. I got grafted in. The wild branch. The little Gentile puppy dog got to come to the table. From Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Levi, the third oldest son of Jacob. Levi passed on the oral history to his grandson, Amram. Anybody remember that name? And Amram, he had a son named Moses. And the word of God, the oral tradition of God, that had been communicated with men, was passed down from generation to generation, and then you know the story. Moses receives the oral tradition, the oracles from God, the word of God from the Lord himself, and it's commanded to write the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what I call an advantage. But the verse that I just read said that the advantage is not just to you, but to the Greek also. So let's look at this together, and we'll close with this. I know we must needs go, but... What I want you to see here very clearly, and here's what I want you to leave with and be encouraged with, is that the Word of God is just as much an advantage to you as it was to the Jew of old. The Word of God is an advantage to you just as much as it was to the Jew. Three ways. Number one, see the Word of God as the advantage as your primary resource. Your primary resource. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 
The Bible, the Word of God, is your primary resource for everything in life. That is your advantage. That is your upper hand. Most of the world is looking for an advantage, is looking for an upper hand, is looking for wisdom, is looking for the path to follow, is looking for the next door to be open or the next leaf to be overturned. And every single day of your life, you have a primary resource that will give you correction, reproof, sound doctrine, instruction. And not only will it do that, but it will do that within the capability and the capacity of God's righteousness. I would call that a resource for life. It is your primary resource. It should always be your resource. Start with the word of God in life. Everything that the Jew did and everything that the Jew ate and every action that the Jew made, including where he went and how far he went, everything filtered through the word of God. Now, I don't live under the law. I don't have the 613 thou shalt and thou shalt not, but I do have the word of God and I want to live my life with the advantage that this is my primary resource for every day of my life. If you ever wake up and feel empty, if you ever wake up and feel like you don't have the answer, you do. It's in your lap tonight. It is the holy, inspired, infallible word of God. It is your advantage to this life. You want the upper hand? Get out your Bible. You want the wisdom? Get out your Bible. You want to know how and why? Get out your Bible. Secondly, your principle in reason. It is your primary resource, but secondly, it is your principle in reason. This is the first in order of of importance. It is the main idea. If you want to have identity, if you want your family to have identity, for the love of God, would you find something other than a ball team for your kid's identity to be tied to? Would you find something other than where you go to church to be the identity of your family? I'm talking about real Holy Ghost defined identity. The principle and reason for everything to your life is found within the word of God. The word of God, the word of God, the word of God. That is your advantage. It is your principle and reason. Proverbs 2, 6, it says, for the Lord giveth wisdom. Well, where does that wisdom come from? Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. I ask you tonight, where is the mouth of God? Where is the mouth of God? Where are the words of God? It's in your lap. It's canonized for you in Holy Scripture. And inside the Bible, there's all the wisdom and the knowledge. It's more relevant than any idea. It's more relevant than any news talk show. It's more relevant than any Instagram page. It's more relevant than anything you can find on this earth, the Word of God. If your family is falling apart, then would you do yourself a favor and go back to the Word of God for wisdom and knowledge and insight. It should be your principle in every decision and every reason that you have in your life. Why do you do what you do should always match the word of God. It is my why. Why do I come to church? Well, the word of God. Uh, Why do you preach the way you do? Well, because of what I find in the word of God. Why do you believe that Jesus is coming back again? Because it's in the word of God. Why do you think that sin is still wrong? That there's still a heaven and still a hell? And that God will judge the earth based upon those ideas and thoughts and doctrines and principles? Because it's in the word of God. I didn't come up with it. Granddaddy didn't come up with it. I stick and I cling and I hold to the truth of the word of God. It is the principle for all reason of life. 
And it should be the first place you start with anything that has to do with your children, your grandchildren, or decisions you're going to make in life. When's the right time to retire? For the love of God, would you include God in that decision? Should you buy that house? Would you include God in that? Would you allow Him to be the principal in reasoning and not your own understanding or wisdom? It leads to hurt, it leads to pain, it leads to problems. And a lot of times the church is the one left cleaning up the mess. The greatest antidote to our stupidity is the Word of God. You say, that's rough. No, it's just the truth. We could fix a lot of problems if we get back to the principle and reason. Thirdly and lastly, and this is the best part, this is where we can shout, say praise the Lord, amen, hallelujah, lights are out, time to go. I promise, I get the message. Message received. The lights are going out. Brother Greg's not even near the lights, so the lights just cut out on their own. What a blessing. Did we pay the bill? Where's Miss Barbara? We paid the bill. Okay. All right. Lastly, and I'm done. Your personal rejuvenation. It is your primary resource for life. It is your principle and reason for life. But then when you get tired and you get weary, the word of God is your personal rejuvenation. This is the benefits package. Listen, this is like getting signed to the Atlanta Braves and getting a $300 million contract to play third base like Austin Riley. And you have the clubhouse and you have the benefits for your family and you've got coaches and trainers and dietitians and all these people at your, at your fingertips, all the resources you can imagine to be the best baseball player in your, in, in, ever to ever walk the face of the earth. All of the resources are there. And it's like winning that lottery, if you will, of being the starting third baseman for the greatest baseball organization ever to exist on the planet, the Atlanta Braves. And choosing to show up every day with no practice, no training, no dietitian, no resources that are available to you and expecting to do good at third base. They would have him at AAA and Gwinnett so fast his head would spin. $300 million in all. Turn that to the Christian. God saved you, did he? Okay, 13 people in here are saved tonight. God saved you, right? Praise God! I am too. I am too. But do you realize there's a benefits package that God gave to us and it's called the Word of God. Psalm 73, 26, it says, My flesh and my heart faileth, but... There's a big conjunction there. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the provision of God that takes the, the scales that are dipped way down against you. This is where your heart's failed, your flesh has failed, and you have nothing else left in the tank. You're drained emotionally, you're drained spiritually, you can't smile no more, you can't fake it till you make it no more, there's nothing left. And then God says, but he will be your strength and your portion, not for just three-fourths of the way, but forever. And then all of a sudden, the scales get tipped way back in your favor, and God steps into the situation, into the circumstance, and even when it doesn't make sense, and even when your heart's hurting. And even when you're broken, and even when you're sad, and even when you're dejected, and even when you're depressed, and even when you feel like you're not going to make it, even when you're afraid to live and afraid to die, you can go to the Word of God, and by faith, you can reach out into His Word, 
and find for you personal rejuvenation. It's not my brother, it's not my sister, but it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's personal and it's for you. The Jew had the advantage, but they share the advantage because Jesus paid for your advantage. Listen to me now, I could spend all night preaching this. My God, I could spend all night preaching this. Your advantage started getting paid for in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus was so broken and he said, not my will, but thy will be done. He did it on your behalf. And he started paying the down payment on your advantage to have the word of God and for it to mean anything to you. And tonight you can leave here recharged, refreshed, rejuvenated, and have your sights fixed perfectly on the word of God as the resource that you need and the advantage that you have. You want an advantage? It's in your hands. Take it, use it, live it. Put it in the devil's face and say, nana, nana, boo-boo. And let's go for God. Do it with your Bible in your hand. Holy Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, thank you for these precious people. God, thank you for their attentive ear. Lord, thank you for allowing us to go just a few minutes over tonight to put into the ears of the people what you've put in our heart. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day that you've given us, for all that you've accomplished here, for the glory of God. Take it and seal it. Protect us as we go home. Bring us all back together on the Lord's day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Good night. God bless you. Please go get your children and your teenagers and be safe on the way home.